You realize that I do some annoying things, but for the most part, you've learned to deal with my idiosyncrasies. Right? Well, good. Because I'm going to do that overly pedantic, annoying thing I do a couple times a year. Happy Easter, everyone. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. No, I'm not a week late on that. Easter was last Sunday, and Easter is this Sunday. Because, and you never could have guessed this is where I was going, Easter is a season in the church. Yes, I do this every Christmas, and I do this every Easter. You've learned to accept me. Thank you for that. Easter isn't just one day, but it's a 50-day season. I say that to you this morning, and I say it every year, not just to be annoying, but we need Easter to be more than one day. We need Easter to be a season. We need Easter to be a season because the Easter message, the Easter story, the Easter gospel is something we need time with, something we need to think on and meditate and ponder, something we need to marinate in so it can be become part of the fabric of our lives and the fabric of our souls. You see, the Easter gospel, the Easter message, the Easter story is not something we hear once and then go on with our own lives. This story is earth-shattering and world-changing. This story calls us to base our lives on something completely different. This story reframes everything we know about ourselves and about our world. This story is a game changer. The Easter gospel, the Easter message, the Easter story calls us to become Easter people. And in order to become Easter people, we need Easter to not just be one day, but a whole season in which we contemplate, think about, and are reminded to be people who live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Easter people live a different life. Easter people live an Easter life. Easter people live according to Easter logic. We live according to the logic that says that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and that God intends to do the same for all of us and that we can live fully committed and faithful lives before God because God is on the side of the righteous. We live according to the logic that says God is not our enemy but God is with us and for us. We live according to the logic that says we don't need to fear God, but we can love God and serve God. We live according to the logic that we can and ought to and are called to follow the words and teachings of Jesus Christ. But this doesn't happen overnight. This doesn't happen in one worship service. This happens daily as we live in the light of the resurrection. So every year, we take 50 days, not one day, but 50, to tell the Easter stories again and again in order to be transformed by them, to become Easter people, to become people who follow the words and teachings of Jesus. That said, if you read some of the teachings of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, you might quickly wonder how it is that we actually follow some of these words. Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus calls us to sell all that we have and give our money to the poor. Jesus tells us 
parables about leaving behind family and career and possessions in order to find the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us to not worry about what we're going to wear or what we are going to eat. Jesus tells us to be perfect as God is perfect. Jesus tells us to do all that, and then Jesus tells a parable about workers who worked all day and workers who worked for an hour getting paid the same amount for the job and says that is what the kingdom of God is like. How are we to do all of this? Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote about this problem. He said, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it can even be dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. We are called to be Easter people. We are called to live our lives anew in the light of the Easter gospel, the Easter story, the Easter message. We are called to follow the words and teachings of Jesus in our lives in this world. And yet we might read those teachings. We might read those words and think, I literally can't even. That's what the young people these days are saying. The young people these days, when they face something they know they have to do but just don't want to do, will say, I literally can't even right now. When we have to prepare our taxes, I literally can't even right now. When we have a flat tire, I literally can't even right now. When we have to do something that requires any sort of mental aptitude before we have our first cup of coffee in the morning, I literally can't even right now. When pastor is doubling and tripling down on a joke that's not really all that funny, I literally can't even right now. Can I get a witness? <laughs> we read the teachings of Jesus and we might rightly say, I literally can't even. Jesus is asking us to do impossible things. Jesus is asking more of us than we can realistically accomplish. And yet, because of Easter... Jesus has made the impossible possible. So in light of the Easter gospel, for the next few weeks, we are going to look at some impossible things Jesus told us to do. And we are going to talk about how we can make those impossible things possible. We're going to look, that, we're going to look at passages that would make us say, I literally can't even, and we're going to literally can even. You see what I did there? Made the can't into a can. Yeah. Yeah. I can keep going like this until you laugh. <laughs> and these passages are going to come from the Sermon on the Mount. Because that is where we find some of Jesus' most difficult teachings. The first piece of scripture we're going to look at comes early in the sermon. 
We're in Matthew 5. Also, if you think my sermons are long, Jesus' sermon was like three chapters long. So, you know, be blessed. <laughs> in Matthew 5, 13 to 20, we see Jesus saying, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches the, these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this passage can pretty straightforwardly be divided. This passage can be pretty straightforwardly divided into smaller sections. There's two. There's the two metaphors section, and then there's the section that introduces Jesus's teachings on Torah. Within the first section, there are two metaphors themselves. And within the second longer se section, there's an endorsement of the law and then an acknowledgement that Jesus' interpretation of the law will represent a new teaching. And we're going to go through these bit by bit. First, starting with salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Who here has ever had bad french fries? Yeah. Now, there are a lot of things that go into making a really good french fry. It's got to be crisp. It's got to be hot. It's got to be that perfect golden yellow color. And it has to be, it has to be the right amount of salty. Now that I've gotten you all hungry, the main, but I think the main part of a good French fry is the saltiness. I've had some fries that came out looking perfect, and you take one bite, and the salt is missing, and it's ruined. And here's what I learned a few years ago. You can't just take that unsalty French fry after it's been out of the fryolator, which I think is the technical term for it, and, uh, for a few minutes, and then sprinkle salt on it because the salt won't melt in. It won't fix the problem. If you don't salt those things right after they come out, they're bad and they're bad forever. If you, we all know that salt is meant to be a flavoring agent. It's meant to add taste. It's meant to add that final missing element in food. And so it's easy for us to say that the church, that Christians, that followers of Jesus are meant to add a little something extra to the world. 
We're meant to add a little goodness, add a little love to the world to make it just a bit better. And that's a fine metaphor. And it got me talking about French fries. But it's not the whole story. You see, we use salt today primarily as a flavoring agent. But that wasn't its primary purpose in Jesus' day. Salt in ancient times was primarily a preservative. You see, salt kept meat from going bad. And that was incredibly necessary because no one had taken the time to invent the refrigerator yet. They were lazy. So when Jesus tells his ancient listeners that they are the salt of the earth, he is telling his followers, he is telling his disciples, he is telling us, the church, that we are the preservative that guards the earth from decay. We aren't the salt of the earth to add just a pinch of goodness into the mix. We're the salt of the earth because there is something that is going to cause the earth to spoil, and we are the ones that keep that from happening. Now, doesn't that sound impossible? So how do we do this? How do we preserve the earth from decay? By proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By living the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By being people who live according to a different logic. Not a death logic. Not a foundation that says everything will one day pass away, so we should get ours and do whatever we can to keep death from touching us but instead who live according to an Easter logic. One that says our eternal God will keep us eternally in his love and grace and life. One that says God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating sin and defeating death, and we can live fully in the hope that Jesus' victory is our victory. We can do the impossible because the Easter gospel makes the impossible possible. So now we move to light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the next image Jesus uses for, for the church and for his followers is that we are the light of the world. And Jesus uses two different images for what it means for us to be the light of the world. We first are compared to a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Because if you are traveling at night, in the dark, before streetlights and light pollution ruined the beauty of the night, if you are in near total darkness, any small speck of light, even a far-off city built on a hill, cannot be hidden. Even the smallest amount of light shines bright in the darkness. And what that means is that even if there is only one follower of Jesus in a world full of darkness, even if there is just one, the light will shine. The light cannot be hidden. The light cannot be snuffed out. But then Jesus says we are like a lamp that is put on a stand. In this case, we aren't talking about a little bit of light standing defiantly against the overall darkness, but we are talking about a massive amount of light overwhelming the darkness. Because one overhead lamp is enough to light an entire room. One lamp is enough to drive out the darkness from an entire room. 
so too is the church called to drive out the darkness from our world. It's not enough to be salt and preserve the earth from decay. Preservation is a passive activity. We are called to be light. We are called to be a lamp and actively drive out the darkness. And we do this by boldly declaring to the world the Easter gospel, the Easter story, the Easter message. We do this by telling the story, the news of Jesus Christ who was crucified and is now raised from the dead. We do this by driving out hate through love. We do this by driving out despair through joy. We do this by dr driving out grief with hope. We do this by driving out despair through happiness. And Jesus moves to Torah. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now what we have to know about this section in the sermon is that Jesus is speaking to Israelites, to Jews who already thought they were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Israel already thought they were God's hope for the world and the world's hope for God. They were God's chosen. They were God's own special people. And the sign of that was the covenant. The sign of that was the law. The sign of that was Torah. Israel being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, not earth-shattering to Jesus' hearers. This being accomplished through fulfilling Torah, not earth-shattering to Jesus' hearers. They'd have said, yep, we know that. But the problem was that no one could fulfill Torah. They literally couldn't even. Yeah, I did that. I brought it back. But here Jesus is saying that he will fulfill Torah, which is a bold claim, an impossible claim, potentially a blasphemous claim. One of my favorite movies growing up was The Sandlot. It's the greatest movie of my childhood. Uh, and the, the beginning part of the movie centers around this moment in time when Babe Ruth steps up to the plate and points his bat at center field. And then knocks it out of the park. Sadly, I was not alive for that moment, although I have to imagine that was the best moment in sports history. Enough that like 60 years later, they made a movie that, whose opening centered around that moment that may or may not have actually happened. Jesus here is claiming to do the impossible. We might balk at some of the impossible things that Jesus tells us to do. When we might balk at being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we need to remember that Jesus claimed he would do something impossible. And then Jesus did it. Not unlike Babe Ruth. That's why I brought that up. Sorry for the non sequitur. Jesus called his shot and knocked it out of the park. Jesus claims he will fulfill Torah, something we believed to be impossible, and then he does it. And because Jesus fulfilled Torah, we can do the impossible things that Jesus asks us to do. Which leads us to Jesus' discussion of righteousness. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We conclude with a bit about the righteousness of the Pharisees. It comes right after Jesus says he wasn't going to abolish Torah, but was going to fulfill Torah. And here's the thing. Jesus wasn't the only person bent on fulfilling Torah. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were themselves committed to fulfilling Torah. The Pharisees get a bad rap in modern sermons, but they were a group of highly respected devotees to fulfilling the law. Jesus says that his followers' righteousness must surpass even the Pharisees if they are going to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And to his followers, that would have sounded impossible. Because in those days, the Pharisees weren't necessarily hated or derided or terrible. They were people who were earnestly trying to fulfill Torah and failing miserably. I can't claim to know why they failed, mainly because I'm a church person. And chances are, apart from Jesus, I might have wound up being a Pharisee too. But what I can say is they were a group of people trying to do something impossible apart from Jesus. And as people who are called to do impossible things, the only way I know how to succeed is to do them with Jesus. Which brings me ultimately to how we live this out. How we live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And wouldn't you know it's right where we started? By following Jesus. By doing the things he's told us to do. They might sound impossible. They might seem impossible. They might make us think, I literally can't even. But we can. We can do them. Because Jesus has made a way. The same Jesus who fulfilled Torah. The same Jesus who overcame the grave has made a way for us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. This week, I want you to be the salt of the earth. This week, I want you to be the light of the world. This week, I want you to tell someone the Easter gospel. I want you to tell someone the Easter message. This week, I want you to tell someone that Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, we can have hope. We can have faith. We can have joy. And we can have salvation. And if we all tell one person that message, that story, that news... We will have driven out more darkness from our world and we will have preserved more our world from decay. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, we're here to follow Jesus. We're here to be his disciples. We're here to follow his teachings and to do the things that he told us to do. But God, it seems so hard sometimes. It seems so hard. It's hard to lose our lives for the gospel's sake. It's hard to give up our security. It's hard to not worry about what we'll wear or where our food will come from. It's hard to be salt. It's hard to be light. 
So God, we need your spirit. We need your grace. We need your love. We need you to come into our lives and give us the faith and the hope that we can do these things, that we can follow Jesus. We can be salt. We can be light. And we don't need to worry about the consequences of that because you have shown us what the consequences of a faithful life are. So God, give us the grace to go out in the world to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of the world. Give us grace to go out into the world and to proclaim the Easter message. Make us, God, make us to tell one person this week that Jesus rose from the dead. Make us to tell one person this week that they can have life in Jesus' name. Help us. Help us drive out the darkness from our world. And help us. Help us to keep one more person, one more life, one more soul from succumbing to decay. God, we pray all this in the name of of the one who was crucified and is risen and lives with you forever. Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, who makes the impossible possible. Amen.